Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. A problem just written about by itself, we're, we're way past that. Where we are now is what are we doing and who's doing the work to solve the problem. Some may argue there's no place on a journalism podcast to talk about advocacy publications, but often the news outlets that cover a particular issue, such as feminism, are the only ones reporting on a problem deeply and outlining solutions. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Ms. Magazine debuted in 1972, charting a new path in journalism centering on feminist voices and concerns. Catherine Spiller is the longstanding executive editor of Ms. In that role, she oversees its print magazine, digital platforms, and companion educational and outreach programs. She's here today to talk to me about what Ms. is doing to mark its the 50th anniversary and what that will mean for the magazine's next 50 years. Kathy, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. So, well, first of all, you know, I was looking at your biography and, and you came to journalism via political activism. You know, how has that sort of informed your role as a leader there at Ms.? Well, it has indeed informed the work that we're doing here. The Feminist Majority Foundation, and I'm the executive director of, of the foundation, took over publishing of Ms. in 2001, right at the end of 2001. And so we've been publishing now for 22 years. And when we took it on, we wanted to be sure that Ms. was reflecting the work of the large feminist movement not only here in the United States, but around the world. And, you know, so much of what remains in the work towards full equality for women is political equality, equality in decision-making and in power. And so a lot of the work that we do is focused on how women's rights groups and feminist groups are working to gain equality in the political arena, but also continuing the work on the social front? Uh, how do we change culture to catch up to where people want to be, women want to be? And it's been a real opportunity to have Ms. as a communications platform to cover the full range of issues that feminists are working on, uh, again, here and globally, because we do reach globally. And so it just made sense as a communications tool that we could bring to it our deep knowledge of the movement, our connections to the hundreds and thousands of women's rights groups in the United States and globally that are working every day to advance opportunity and equal justice for women and girls. So the magazine, I think, has reflected that because of our role inside the movement and our desire to be sure that people know what the movement's doing and how they can get involved. You know, as a journalism podcast, let's let's talk a little bit about the journalism aspect of it. You know, what was it like, you know, taking over in 2005, in your role, something that was for the longest time perceived as a, as a print magazine, you know, what did you do to take it into the digital space? 
We started, obviously, by continuing to publish the magazine and distribute it as widely as possible, not only through newsstand sales, but also memberships. When we took on the magazine, by the way, we converted to a membership model. You don't subscribe to Ms. you join the Ms. community, and the magazine is one of the benefits that you get by virtue of your membership. But we wanted to expand beyond the membership and beyond the newsstand, so we started a digital program in college classrooms and now have expanded in terms of reaching many in high school classrooms with a digital version of the magazine and, uh, you know, have literally thousands of students every year who use Ms. as a teaching text in their courses on women's studies or political science or multicultural studies. But we also wanted to make sure that all of the groups that are working for women's rights in the United States had opportunity to have Ms. magazines at their annual conferences and could offer Ms. as a benefit of being a member of that group, whether it was the National Organization for Women or, or another women's rights group. So we undertook a lot of expansion in that arena. And then as it became very clear that you've got to be online to be reaching even more people and as people want to get their news more on their cell phones and their laptops and their iPads, we began to dramatically expand the work that we were doing at MsMagazine.com. It's not the same as the magazine. We don't publish every article that is in the magazine on the website. We do publish some, but we also have expanded the articles that we're able to produce. We're up to over 1,500 to 2,000 articles a year on MsMagazine.com. And we search out the voices of those who are doing this work, who can talk in very informed ways about, you know, whether it's for legal equality or more women in political office or in appointed offices or in the judicial branch. Uh, Is it about the challenges that women continue to face in the classroom that teenagers face. We now have articles that are written by teen journalists, and it's their first often opportunity to publish in the magazine as well as online. So we began to dramatically expand our outreach to movement leaders, to experts on these issues that we're all working on to provide content for the website. And so we're able to provide really up to the minute informed content on the issues that also then are reflected in the magazine. So the the website reaches millions annually. We then, of course, go into social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, however we can reach feminists in whatever format they want to keep them informed and to keep them empowered to take action. You know, this is a movement. Ms. has played a key role in this movement, which really kicked off again in the in the mid-1960s, early 1960s. Ms. was established as a magazine in 1972. So throughout its 50-year history, Ms. has played a key role in spreading ideas and information and connecting feminists to each other, which is a very important aspect of a movement. You've got to collectively work towards moving forward. And that is a key aspect of what Ms. has been able to do. And in the virtual world, internet and, and social media, even more can connect. And so it's, it's the power of ideas and information 
that Ms. has played in this larger movement to keep people feminists connected and informed. And so, and recently we've now gone into podcasting because more and more people want to get their news and opinion and ideas through podcasting. So we've got two very popular podcasts. One is on the issues with Michelle Goodwin. Michelle is a law professor at UC Irvine. She's an expert on reproductive justice and reproductive rights issues and all manner of constitutional issues impacting women. And it's a very popular newscast, uh, podcast rather. And recently then we also launched a shorter version of it. If you don't have an hour to listen in detail to her guests and and their ideas and information. We've got one called 15 Minutes of Feminism. So in 15 minutes, you can get caught up on some of the most current issues of the day and feel like you've gotten some good news. That's a smart use of podcasting. Sometimes the temptation is to go long, but uh, people don't necessarily want to invest all that time, but they may still want to get the points that you're you're making in the longer interview. You know, one of the things you said before about, you know, reaching more people being very proactive in the digital space, I mean, that's going to help you reach people around the planet. And you did mention the podcast, but as part of the uh, the 50-year sort of celebration or, or just marking that achievement, you've also launched this thing called Ms. Studios. Could you sort of tell me a little bit more about that in- initiative? Right. It's a very exciting development. We decided to mark the 50 years of magazine by looking forward to how we stay relevant and vital in the next 50 years. And so we've established Miss Studios. Michelle Goodwin is the executive producer of Miss Studios and the ideas that beyond the podcast that she hosts, we intend to be able to offer a whole range of podcasts that address different interests in feminism, everything from, you know, feminist humor to feminist investigative series to food even as a feminist issue. And so we think it's going to provide an opportunity in this arena of podcasting from a feminist lens perspective that is promoted by a known and trusted source of information on feminism and feminist issues. So we're very excited about that and hope to actually ultimately be able to add video. We also, as part of Ms. Studios, are starting a series called Ms. Talks. There'll be an annual big conference that uh, people can come to, to be able to connect to other feminists, and then a series of online live stream talks as well. So we've just got lots of big plans and are very excited about the opportunity and are undertaking all the work to fundraise for that um, so that we can execute those ideas and that expansion as brilliantly as we envision. So I, I guess also a part of the uh, 50th anniversary, there's a, the release of a book, 50 Years of Ms. And what does that contain? You know, what, what are people going to find out if they, they purchase it and, and read it? Well, it'll be released next spring. This is our 50th year. We want to get through it. But the book will have some of the most iconic articles and cover art and letters to the editor over the last 50 years. And putting it together, you can see the the evolution of the role of Ms. throughout that 50 years. And in the very earliest days, Ms. was a vital source for naming the problem, for defining what the problem was. I mean, those were the days that women were finding Ms. and, and realizing they weren't the only ones who felt a certain way or who 
who was, uh, you know, encountering a particular problem, whether it was in the workplace or in the domestic sphere or in society writ large. So we, we talk about it in those early days being the click moments. Actually, the, the whole idea of click was introduced in the housewife's moment of truth, which was the cover story in 1972 when Ms. went in production and newsstand distribution. So from then on, you know, people have referred to the click moment when they realized that it wasn't them. It wasn't something that was wrong with them. It was larger institutions. It was society not catching up to where women wanted to be and their aspirations and their dreams. So in those early days, it was very vital that it was searching out stories uh, here in the United States and around the world so that women and the men who read Ms. could see what are the problems? What is it we have to tackle? In the mid-1980s or so, that began to shift. And Ms. has continued since then to be a source of ideas for how are we going to solve these problems and for identifying the real opposition to women's fully equality. You know, it's not public opinion. It's not that people don't believe in equality for women and girls. That's not the obstacle. The obstacle continues to be those institutions, in many cases, corporate America or other so-called corporate media operations that continue to profit on discriminating against women and girls. It's the same concept on discrimination on the basis of race or ethnicity or sexual orientation. There's profits to be made if you can marginalize and isolate people on the, on the basis of sex or race orientation. And frankly, I mean, in the workplace, not pay as much or keep opportunities out of their reach so that you keep them for yourself. So that has been a focus that we've pursued as we have been the publisher of Ms. is that we want people to understand who is standing in the, in the path of progress that needs to be a bright light shown on and we need strategies for how we dismantle those obstacles. But throughout this entire time, you can see that Ms. has played a very key role in informing the movement and empowering the movement. Do you see that the same obstacles are, are still there? Have the obstacles changed at all or are they all pretty much the same thing, maybe with a different face? Well, a major obstacle that has changed is public opinion. When Ms. started, probably less than 15 or 20 percent of women self-identified as a feminist. And the numbers for men was probably, you know, less than 5 percent. By the mid-80s, which is when this real shift begins, a majority of women in the United States self-identified as feminist. The most recent polling that's comprehensive and nationwide by the Pew Research Center has that number at 61% now. And it's all ages with the strongest identification being at the younger demographic, but it cuts across all ages, all races. In fact, black women and Latinas identify as feminists at even higher rates than white women. And now something like 40% of men say that the word feminist either describes them very well or somewhat well. So we have this movement through its work, despite, by the way, the mainstream media denigrating feminism and feminists, caricature uh, feminists, you can, you can think about it in your own mind. Despite all that disparagement, 
the majority of women, a super majority at 61%, say that they are feminists. So that is, you know, maybe public opinion in the earliest days was a problem. It has not been since the mid-1980s. The opponents of equality have remained the same the whole time. Who is in the state legislatures lobbying for, you know, uh, keeping regulations in place that allow them to discriminate in the workplace uh, or in insurance, for example. The insurance industry has notoriously been opposed to full legal equality for women, opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment, because they're, they're an, a sector of this economy that's heavily regulated and could be prohibited from price discrimination. They now are prohibited from price discrimination in health insurance, thanks to the Affordable Care Act, the ACA. But in other forms of insurance, whether it's life or annuities or even uh, car insurance, uh, there continues to be massive sex discrimination that costs women billions of dollars every year more than their male counterparts pay for the same package of insurance. So it's those are the entities that the Manufacturers Association, the Chambers of Commerce, those have notoriously been the key operatives in state legislatures and in Congress against laws that would strengthen opportunities and equality for women and girls. And the Catholic Conference of Bishops has been a major opponent of full legal equality for women, both on, on the basis of the abortion issue, but also they believe that full equality for women would be the beginning of the end of their male hierarchy. So that's what we're up against. These are very, very powerful institutions, very wealthy institutions. And so when we say there's, you know, there's opposition, that's what we're talking about. And those are the forces that we work to expose and to galvanize action, to knock them out of the way. So again, as a, as a journalism podcast, let me ask you this. What makes a good pitch to your magazine? What are the stories that you want to hear being pitched to you? Almost anything that has to do. <laughs> anything. <laughs> uh, you know, almost anything. I mean, obviously, it's got to be, you know, through a feminist lens, whatever the issue is. And we also tell writers, you know, independent writers who pitch us that we want to be sure that we also, in the course of an article, identify the activists that are doing the work. You know, nothing just happens. Sometimes in more mainstream journalism, you know, it's one person who suddenly, you know, creates a whole movement that changes everything, right? That never happened. It just simply never happens. And I always tell the story to interns who are dying to get into working in feminism and whether it's on Ms. Magazine or some of the other programs the Feminist Majority Foundation does, is the story of Rosa Parks. You know, we are constantly told in popular media that she decided one day not to give up her seat at the front of the bus and that that started the whole boycott and the movement for desegregation, et cetera, et cetera. That just ignores the fact, one, that she was the secretary of the local NAACP and that it had long been planned how to organize public opinion and outrage. And so she was part of the planning. And when she refused to give up her seat, that was part of what then triggered the plan to go into action, 
and ended up in the in the bus boycotts and and reinforced the work of the civil rights movement writ large, the marches and the demonstrations and the sit-ins. And it was all part of a movement. And to pretend that movement is not important to advancing the cause of equality is to do a disservice. So if someone pitches us about the work being done to stop street harassment, for example, we want them to talk about the groups that are organizing that, not only to give credit where credit is due. You know, throughout history, anonymous has always been the woman. So we want to give credit where credit is due. And we also want people to be able to reach out to those groups and get involved because it takes, you know, massive involvement to keep a movement vital and making progress. And so that we feel is a very important role that Ms. plays and is very critical. So if you're going to pitch us something, you've got to have some opportunity within the piece to name the key players and to, you know, frankly, also present solutions to a problem. You know, a problem just written about by itself, we're, we're way past that. Where we are now is what are we doing and who's doing the work to solve the problem. You know, obviously you're advocating for a particular position. That's You make no bones about the fact, you know, that Ms. has a feminist standpoint. And those are the stories that you want to tell. You know, that's the movement you want to promote. For, you know, a working journalist, man or a woman, what would you say to them if they want to try to write about stories about women's issues, about feminism, you know, how can they, you know, maybe work those stories more into the work that they're doing? Well, I would urge them to, you know, buck their editors a little bit and their management. You know, there's really not two sides to the issue of women's equality. And so if they're asked to interview someone who's opposed, they should push back on a particular issue. You're right. We're movement journalism. We're sometimes referred to as advocacy journalism or solutions journalism. We do have a point of view. We do not provide equal space to opponents. They have their own magazines, their own television news networks. <laughs> and frankly, so-called mainstream you know, publications as well frequently will, you know, try, we call it uh, both sideism. You know, they want to report both sides. Well, come on. Is there another side to stopping violence against women and girls? Is there really another side to denying women basic health care and condemning young girls and women to a lifetime of misery, potentially? costing them their lives, their health, their futures. Really, is there another side to that? This is 2022. And so I really do think that journalists who don't have the opportunity to work in this movement journalism space all the time need to start pushing back to some of their editors and saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to interview that person or that entity. Because it's like interviewing the Klan when you're talking about racial discrimination and racial injustice. Really, is an editor going to assign you to go talk to the Klan or to the Proud Boys? I don't think so. And the reason I ask that question, because I think sometimes people avoid or are hesitant to cover certain, certain types of stories because they, they don't want to be accused of advocacy. 
But as you explained, that you know, there aren't two sides to a lot of these stories. It behooves people to push themselves a little bit and to push back and address these issues. What is it that concerns you most now, but also what, what gives you the most hope right now? Before I go there, let me just say one other thing. When regular journalists, if I can call regular journalists, want to write for Ms., they should know that, boy, we have a rigorous research department and fact-checking. So if it appears in Ms., it's based in fact and based in good research. So even though we have a point of view, it is backed up by strong research and facts. I had a, a very experienced investigative journalist one time who worked for a newspaper in Virginia, and he was doing a, a piece for us. And, and by the way, we do have men write for us as well. We kept asking him a series of questions. And at the end of it, he came back and he said, boy, I'll tell you, you're the toughest fact check process I've ever worked with. And he had worked with a lot of publications. So I, that was a badge of honor for us, a little frustrating for him. But what are the what are the challenges? Before you go into that, just let me let me comment. I wasn't, you know, criticizing saying that just because you had a, a particular point of view that that you weren't fact checking. But anyway, no, the question I was going to uh, that I asked you, you know, what are you most concerned about now? But also what what is it that gives you the most hope? Most concerned about what we see as a rise of authoritarianism, not only around the world, but here in the U.S., authoritarian forces. We witnessed it during the Trump administration. It was out front. But even now, you know, we are seeing one state legislature after another enact bans on access to abortion care, enact bans on teachers discussing race and sex discrimination in their classrooms, bans on talking about sexual orientation in classrooms. These are the marks of authoritarian regimes all over the world, whether it's Russia or Hungary, what's happening in Afghanistan. We, we've reported a lot in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. The Feminist Majority Foundation had taken on that issue long before we, we took on the magazine. But in the magazine, we have covered the struggle of feminists in Afghanistan to gain more political equality and workplace equality and educational equality and had made such strides over 20 years only to see it wiped out overnight as the Taliban retook power in that country. And so we're watching that play out across the globe, but right here in the United States as well. And wanting to be sure that people understand that women and women's rights are the canaries in the coal mine. The attacks on women lead to larger attacks on civil rights and, you know, democracy. And we want people to understand the links between women's rights and democracy. In fact, it's one of the new projects that we've launched through Ms. Studios is a series of women in democracy, multi-platform series in print, on the website, in podcasts, and in video. We want people to understand the links between abortion rights and democracy, between uh, the Equal Rights Amendment and democracy. The Equal Rights Amendment is still stalled after 50 years, 100 years really of feminist work, 50 years on this particular Equal Rights Amendment, and how important women's full participation in all aspects of life to sustaining democracy. You can't have a democracy that sustains over time if you are denying over half your population full rights. 
there's so much research and data on that. And so we're, we're working to make sure that that's converted to in popular media, easy to understand if you're not an academic or a historian. And so we're trying to sound the alarm on that. What gives me hope is that, you know, despite all of these obstacles, the feminist movement marches on. People just are not going to give up. People have given their lives for this movement. Women are, you know, standing up to these authoritarian regimes and risking their very lives to stand up for women's equality. And the role that Ms. plays is so critical to continuing that story and continuing that narrative. So that's what gives me hope is to be able to reflect these stories and these efforts so that nobody gives up in this and understands the importance of keeping this movement vital and strong. I appreciate the interview. I think it's terrific. I hope you reach a lot of people. <laughs> so do I. Um... <laughs> and they can get to us at MsMagazine.com. That's the other thing I do want to tell people. And they can, we don't charge to sign up for our newsletters. You can get a daily newsletter or just a weekly roundup and, and you can listen to the podcast. None of that is behind a paywall. And we're very proud of that. I've been talking with uh, Kathy Spiller, the executive editor at Ms. about the magazine's 50 years centering on feminist voices and concerns. Kathy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Lamia Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.